ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Picture this. You're out on a bushwalk or taking a stroll around your local lake. When from somewhere, overhead, a bird call rings out loud and clear. Well, the days of guessing may be gone as researchers have launched a search engine that analyses and identifies the sounds of wildlife. Just like you would type in a, a Google search into the web, we can type in a search for a particular sound and we actually upload the little sort of sound file and then it will search through the whole of the uh, database for the acoustic observatory to find where is that species you know calling and when was it calling. You'll hear how this new tool will assist conservation efforts and help scientists keep track of where species end up after a natural disaster. I'm Gianfranco Di Giovanni coming to you from Wajak Country Perth and this is Australia Wide. Today, the 20th United Nations Climate Change Conference, more commonly known as COP28, begins. It's held in Dubai this year, and the conference will see leaders from across the globe come together to tackle climate change and hopefully develop solutions that work for everyone. COP28 will run through to the 12th of December, and there's already been a little bit of controversy. It's expected to host over 70,000 delegates, including head of states and world leaders. And our national energy reporter, Daniel Mercer, will also be in the room. Dan, there's a lot on the agenda here. What is the big point of discussion and the big point of controversy that we are facing already in COP28? Well, weirdly, um, you know, before I get into any controversy, Gianni, probably it's worth saying that for once, it, it seems like there might also be just a little bit of optimism about this COP. It seems as if perhaps the the worm has turned at least a little bit and there is now this sort of unstoppable momentum behind renewable energy and the manufacturing capacity that's out there in the world to produce renewable energy, particularly photovoltaic solar panels, uh, and get it out there and installed and generating electricity. So for the first time in a while, perhaps there's been a little less gloom associated with a COP. Having said that, the the nature of who's hosting it has been drawing, uh, you know, some raised eyebrows to say the least. It's the United Arab Emirates, which is one of the world's true petro states and top ten oil producers. And the particular controversy that we've witnessed this week is a suggestion or revelations, depending on your point of view, that uh, the the UAE had essentially been running, um, you know, on both sides of the street. It's hosting this big UN climate conference and talking about the need for green energy and dealing with climate change. And on the other hand, is reportedly trying to stitch up oil and gas deals on the sides, which would appear to be you know, quite the conflict of interest. The UAE, for its part, has rejected that suggestion, but um, there are plenty who believe that there's a fair bit of substance to it. You mentioned that there was an optimism around that manufacturing capacity to provide the energy needs of the world. Um, do you think there will be a, a binding agreement or something approaching that as a result of COP28? Well, look, a couple of the key proposals that have been taken to this COP and which have been very much backed by the UAE, despite its presence in oil and gas, 
uh, a tripling of renewable energy capacity across the world by 2030 and a doubling of energy efficiency by 2030. Both of those things are you know, extremely ambitious and would be massive if they came to pass. And so in some ways, they're almost the headlines to this COP. Of course, you know, proposing a tripling of renewable energy uh, is ambitious and laudable in so many ways, but often the devil is in the detail. And I, I, I suspect that at this COP, uh, a fair bit of the the heat and the pressure will be around how you define what is renewable energy, because you know, it's not as easy as it might seem. Uh, for example, nuclear might claim that it is uh, a form of renewable energy or at least clean energy and therefore should be included in the mix because it has very little uh, emissions or very few emissions um, related to it, despite the nuclear waste. Uh, that's a different matter. Similarly, gas, uh, even coal, Uh, might push to be included if they can somehow say that so long as it's got carbon capture and storage associated with it, the emissions um, aren't vented into the atmosphere. And so you can sort of see how a laudable and simple goal can all of a sudden become a bit of a political football. So I suspect that's where we'll see a lot of the action in Dubai. What does Australia's representation look like at this conference? Well, the Prime Minister won't be going. That's probably just worth pointing out from the start. He's been under a fair bit of pressure about how much he's been travelling lately, uh, despite the fact that all Prime Ministers do it. So in his stead, Chris Bowen, the Federal Climate and Energy Minister, will be the senior Australian representative on the ground in Dubai. And we don't really know what he's going to say. We've had some sort of, I suppose, indications of what he might say so far. For example, Australia is pushing very hard uh, to... Uh, get its renewable energy capacity up to sort of roughly in line with what is the goal at COP. Australia wants to have 82% renewable energy by 2030, and we saw a big move by the federal government to underwrite capacity uh, to bring on that new capacity in time last week. Uh, And also, you know, Australia's pitching to be the host of COP, um, you know, the climate talks uh, in 2026. And so, a lot of what Australia says and does will be aimed at trying to woo other countries and get them on board for Australia to host that bid. Um, interestingly, one of the things that Mr Bowen has flagged, which might be contentious, is that developing rising countries like China and India should pay into what's known as a loss and damage fund, which would ostensibly be used to compensate more vulnerable and poorer nations for the effects of climate change uh, and would be paid for by richer countries. China and India have long argued that the West caused most of the emissions that are the problem today and so they, the Western countries led by the US and Europe, should be paying for all of it or certainly the vast majority of it. There's been some pushback from the West on that point and Chris Bowen jumped into the fray last week Uh, Again, raising a few eyebrows, so that might be another thing to watch out for. Well, we'll see more of your reporting from COP28 over the coming week. Daniel Mercer, thank you for joining us on Australia Wide. Thanks, Johnny. You're listening to Australia Wide. It's a species that I have been fighting for. Growing up in the bush is such a special thing. So when the rain does come, we've we've got a few numbers. It never comes. Put a feather in your cap. ABC Radio. Can you pick... A cockatoo's call? 
or the screech of a galah? Well, artificial intelligence can, and researchers are using that to their advantage. Queensland University of Technology researchers and Google Australia have launched a first-of-its-kind search engine that analyzes and identifies wildlife sounds. I'm joined by the university's Professor Paul Rowe. Professor Rowe, can you tell us a little bit about how this search engine actually works? So a few years ago now, we set up the Australian Acoustic Observatory. Uh, This is a project funded through the Australian Research Council. Um, And the idea was to put out acoustic recorders over the whole of Australia. Uh, So we set up a network of, uh, we've got about 360 recorders out there now. Uh, They're about the size of a shoebox. They've got a little solar panel on them and they record sound continuously. So the idea was to put them out in national parks and places so that we could essentially have ears there listening the whole year round uh, for what was happening. Um, So we have people that come out just once a year, perhaps twice a year to sort of collect the SD cards and wipe down the solar panels um, to collect all of the data. The idea was to use this data so that we can be present all over Australia to sort of understand um, what's happening without having to sort of send teams of people out all the time. I mean, we don't have enough people to do that anyway. Um, and to be, you know, potentially in places that we can't get to, you know, I mean, there are places that have in the outback where there are um, burrowing frogs, which only emerge um, sort of after a storm when there's been some some rain. But of course, you can't get to those areas after a storm because it's sort of flooded and the tracks are impassable. So the idea was to set up this network of acoustic recorders uh, to get some sort of insights into our um, unique bush, our unique country. And we've been successful. So over the last um, sort of four years, we've collected over 300 years of continuous sound data. So now we've got this problem, we've got this huge amount of data, which has been sort of uploaded into our database from these SD cards. And we need to essentially to sort of sift through that data to find um, the animals, find the vocal species. So we're no longer kind of going out into the bush to um, visually look for them. We've uh, got records of them in terms of the calls and sounds that they make, but they're, they're hidden in all this data. And what we want to do is to look in the data to find um, the calls of these species so we can figure out where they are. And more than that, we can figure out when they're in places and are they moving? So over a period of sort of years, we can start to sort of look at uh, for patterns of movement. Are they moving in response to sort of bushfires or to invasive species and to really sort of understand what's what's happening? Is this the sort of work that a person could even do or a team of people could even do? Or is this just something that's only been opened up by being able to feed it to a machine, which are just much better at pattern, pattern recognition than a human could ever be? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the kind of collecting the data and making the, the, the observations, that's done by the little solar-powered acoustic recorders. And really people, you know, we couldn't have people, you know, standing out there in the middle of the bush, you know, day on end, um, sort of looking for, um, you know, rare and endangered species. So the recorders are, are able to do that and to do that at scale. But now we've got the problem of all of this data that we need to sift through. Um, and what we've done is partnered with Google to work on um, some new AI techniques which enable us to search through that data. Um, so what we can do is we can actually present the system with a call or with a sound that we're interested in finding and it will search through all of the data, all 300 years of data, because obviously there's too much data to, to listen to, it takes several lifetimes. 
Um, but we can use the AI um, just by giving it an example of a call and it will search through and find any similar sounding calls to the one that you present it with. So we don't even need to know in advance the kind of call, as long as we've got one example of it, and that, that's important because for some of the species that we're interested in, we may only have a handful of examples of the calls precisely because they are rare, or we might find that the, the, the bird's call may vary from region to region. So the, the nice thing is we can just give a single example of a call, and then the system will sort of pop up um, a map and show us where it sort of found them. Um, without us having to go out into the bush um, at all. So it's automatically connecting the recognised sound to the location where it was recorded and you just drop an SD card worth of files into it and it does it all. Exactly right, exactly right. So the search, we can sort of search for anything, which is the sort of the neat thing, any kind of little sound snippet. So any little sound grab, we can search to see whether that occurs in the database. And what do you do for a species like a lyrebird, which makes a different sound every time you record it? Yeah, look, that's a that's a great question. So there are species that uh, that mimic and things, and we have done some work uh, with lyrebirds. So there are often some particular calls that the species make, or parts of a call that are unique to them. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly it's certainly challenging, and there are some. Um, species, some of the raptors, where it isn't possible to sort of distinguish between um, different species. But nevertheless, it still gives us good insights into what's uh, going on. And it's one of the few ways to really make um, uh, animal, you know, wildlife monitoring sort of scale. Um, because whilst, you know, we can use, you know, for uh, vegetation, for example, we can kind of use drones and satellite imagery and can use the imagery to look over the whole of Australia. If you want to look over the whole of Australia, you know, say for a, um, you know, a cuckoo or a migratory bird or something like that, there really isn't any way to do that other than by using acoustics. So acoustics provides uh, this kind of record of the environment, you know, because we collect the data, we keep the data, um, and then we can look in that data for different things. And that's what the search uh, facility that we've uh, researched with, with Google does. It enables us to query the data just like you would you know, type in a, a Google search into the web, we can type in a search for a particular sound and we actually upload the little sort of sound file and then it will search through the whole of the uh, database for the acoustic observatory to find where is that species, you know, calling and when was it calling. It sounds like a fascinating world to get an insight into and I can't wait to hear uh, what can be discovered. Professor Paul Rowe, thank you for joining me on Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide. I don't want to put a killjoy on their fabulous family tradition but um that was just mayhem and chaos the majority of them are still buying their trees regardless of the snake so this is the first time we've opened the slide this summer on abc radio sport can be such a positive part of our lives it keeps our bodies moving our hearts pumping and it gets us having fun with friends old and new whether it's age ability or injury Maybe the fast-paced game just isn't for you anymore. In South Australia's Riverland region, there's a team of netballers who have tailored the game to a pace that suits them better. Reporter Sophie Landau has this story from the Barmera Netball Courts. It's a balmy weekday evening. I've got my sand shoes on, my water bottle ready, and I'm ready to get moving. <laughs> Yeah. 
I've met up with about two dozen women, all different ages, from their 30s to their 80s. It's surprising the number of people that have sort of come out of the woodwork. We're here to play some netball as the pink and black bibs are divvied out and we all take our places on the court. Yes, we have Jewelry, a very serious inspection at the start. Yes, we do. <laughs> I'm in charge of checking fingers. It's game time and the umpire blows her whistle. And then she blows it again. And she says something not often heard on these courts. Running! No jumping! This is Walking Netball. Riverland Walking Netball coordinator Kerry Albrecht first saw a video online of this unique sport being played by a group of 90-year-old women and thought, hey, this looks like fun. And uh, then Netball SA ran a, a workshop up here, I think it was about May, and yeah, we just decided to start up our own and just see how we go. So what is walking netball? Okay, so basically it is netball, um, but you cannot jump and you cannot run. Um, There are a few adjusted rules. You can take a step with the ball um, and you can hold the ball for four seconds. So a few adjusted rules, but um, and there's no face-to-face defending because they don't want people to be anxious about it. Um, But other than that, it's netball at its finest. My mother just slowed down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, that's what it is about, yes. isn't it? Yes. Fun. Yes. Yes. Serious fun. But yes. Everyone is welcome here, regardless of their age or ability or injury, which Kathy Schleeves knows all too much about. Well, being an ex-A grade player, yes, there was lots of injuries, ankles, um, shoulders. Uh, Then I sort of moved on to umpiring and uh, did some badging. And then I had knee problems with umpiring, but fortunately uh, common sense dictated that they changed the style that we ran, so running forward. But uh, yes, had a couple of arthroscopies and that sort of thing. So, um, but... Walking netball has enabled you to get back into doing the game that you love and have always loved um, at the ability that we can manage. (laughs) It gives you an opportunity to have a good laugh and it's just, it's the social contact as much as uh, the fact that it's an avenue, the game has given us an avenue to, to um, be with people that we can laugh with and have a good time with, and that's really important. <laughs> but as player Jill Clifford points out, well, it doesn't always have to be a slow game. It certainly can be, especially if you're protecting yourself, but it can get a lot faster than you might imagine, especially when she's on the court. But I think as you've seen, the ball can still move quite fast down the court. And once you get the idea of you can't run and you can't jump, I think it gives you a bit of exercise. You can see we're all huffing and puffing out there tonight. Jules also known for cracking up her teammates, dishing out one-liners and quick-witted zingers. Age is not a factor. I think our youngest player is 15 and there would be regularly 
half a dozen women out in their 70s. Um, I think the thing that surprised me is that a majority of people out here are in their 40s and 50s. It really doesn't matter on your school level. And I think the other thing is that it's about meeting new people. I've met a lot of women that I've not known who they were and vice versa. I think most of us would say we've never laughed so much. <laughs> and of course, this team here in the Riverland isn't the only one. The sport, Walking Neville, was developed in 2017 in England and it's played all over the UK, Australia and New Zealand too. There's other slower paced sports as well, like walking basketball, cricket, hockey and soccer. So this sport is all about moving at your own pace and having a good time. As Kerry says... It's netball at its finest. That's the Riverland Walking Netball Group ending that story from Sophie Landau. One of the questions was, Dane, do you, do you remember when Grandad tipped the back over out at the ball? ABC Australia Wide. And it was like, I thought, okay, doke, that thing works. On ABC Radio. And finally for today on Australia Wide, you might have heard of Navigation Apps leading drivers astray, taking people to dead ends, or forgetting there was a lake in the way. Usually the frustration is felt by the person behind the wheel, but for one unfortunate Queensland farmer, these dodgy directions have resulted in a lot of unexpected visitors. Luckily, he had a plan. From Krakow, regional Queensland, reporter Pat Heaney has this story. Some campers that had two four-wheel drives and two caravans and they'd one day were bringing the cows down from the forestry lease to Brand and they just come through and split the mob and kept going. You reckon they could at least pulled up and help Brand because it was a hot day and a bit of extra hand would have helped. At the next intersection, turn right. Or maybe left. There's definitely a road. I'm sure of it. You may have been in this situation. The map on your phone has sent you down the wrong road or street. But what would you do if navigation apps were not only sending drivers the wrong way, but directing them through your property to get to a national park? My son found a juicy van driving down here. A couple of, so what I would have called hippies in it. And, and one day, an old couple had been up the back. I knew they'd been over there overnight. Queensland grazier Graham Anderson lives west of Krakow a town about five and a half hours northwest of Brisbane. Mr Anderson has been redirecting drivers for years as navigation apps send tourists across his paddocks to Isla Gorge, a maze of sandstone outcroppings and rock formations. Except the actual entrance was 20 kilometres down the road. But there's no access to the Isla Gorge through our place at all. And, like you can't even, you've got to, to walk there, it's a long walk. No chance at all, no, you've got got to be fit. <laughs> You're not here 24-7 and yeah, you don't know who's coming and going. Yeah, like You can be down the stockyards working cattle and all of a sudden a car would come down there, turn around and shoot back. There's so much crime, property theft going on around the place, you don't know who they are and like most people are pretty genuine but yeah, you don't know, you might only need that 1% to stake in the place out or you don't know. He took matters into his own hands installing a sign on the highway and pitting his local knowledge against the navigation apps. I just got a bit jack of it and I thought, oh, I've got to do something about it for a thousand bucks. I thought I'd get a sign made. 
trust me, not Google, on just this point the Isle of Gorge is 17.5k on the highway further towards Trome. And Mr Anderson says the sign has worked, dramatically reducing the number of people on his property. Oh yeah, huge difference, but some still, I still have had a couple come in and sort of don't believe it, but it's been pretty positive I think. Some people probably wonder what nut job lives there. <laughs> but I mean, make people look at it and people pull up and take a photo and Oh yeah, it's achieved something. <laughs> Just got to replace it in 10 years when the writing fades. Graham Anderson ending that story by Pat Heaney in Queensland. And that's Australia Wide for this Thursday. My name is Gianfranco Di Giovanni in Fishinade Mangan. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can always podcast the show. Have a listen on your favourite podcast app or listen back using the ABC Listen app. You can search for the Australia Wide website and that's search for ABC Australia Wide, where you can find a full list of all the stories that we've covered and links to find online pieces as well. Remember, you can always get in touch with us as well. We'd love to hear how things are going in your patch. Send us an email to australiawide.radio at abc.net.au. Ciao for now. ABC Listen.